Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. So I wanted to start out a little bit this morning in a different way. I have some guilt trip memes, and I want you to holler out if anybody's ever used this meme with you. How nice of you to call your mother. I was wondering if you were still alive, but didn't want to bother you. Anybody ever had your mom guilt trip you with that kind of a phrase? No? 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 Come on, holler out. Okay, next one. 12 hours of label. I'm going to hear about that the rest of my life. Actually, it was 28 hours for one of our kids, and they hear about it on a regular basis. Anybody ever hear that from your mom? Guilt trip you. I gave you birth. Right? Oh, here's another one. You're five years old. When I was your age, I was six years old. Now, we may not say it like that, right? But what we tend to communicate in the guilt trip is, I was so much more mature and responsible than you were when I was your age, Right? And sometimes we spiritualize it. This next one is wonderful. Hi, I'm a meme meant to force you, to guilt trip you, to get you to share it or like it. And if you don't, you're a heartless unbeliever. Have a nice day, you potential heathen. (laughs) Don't we sometimes like to spiritualize our guilt trips? You know, the last two weeks of messages, I think, could be something that would trigger a guilt trip in all of us. Uh, they've been really heavy messages, and I think if they were left alone, they could feel like a challenge that's unattainable, leaving us feeling like we can never measure up. On Memorial Day, we talked about Jesus' statement that no greater love has, has a person than to lay down their life for another, and we talked about how that, that means if we're going to love like Jesus, if we're going to follow like Jesus, we've got to be all in with sacrificial commitment to Him to love like He loves and love other peoples if we're going to truly follow God. The last week, we talked about one of Jesus' most famous parables, which kind of addresses the question, why some people's lives are really fruitful and others not so much. And within that motivational parable talk that Jesus gives, there's this really hard reality, isn't there, about the condition of our heart. And again, I think that message could easily send us on a guilt trip, feeling like we can never measure up. Tough messages that often spur in us pressure, to buck up and just perform better. But that's not the goal that Jesus is trying to accomplish. That's not what he wants us to just work harder. Jesus says his burden is light. Do you feel like his burden is light in your life? He wants it to be light. God doesn't want following him to be constant heaviness and exhaustion. We're going to continue our series, the stories series for our summer series. We're going to see several interactions with Jesus that all lead up to this really profound, very short parable that I think can help us remove that heaviness and pressure and live in a different way. This, again, is one of those few parables that's found in three out of the four eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, which I think attests to the importance of this parable. So let me summarize the context, and then I'll read some of it to you that leads up to why Jesus tells this parable. It starts out with Jesus returning to his home base. And it just so happens that since Jesus has changed his home base, that it's the hometown of a number of his disciples as well. He arrives home, and people bring him a paralyzed man on a mat to be healed. And Jesus shocks everyone by first saying to the man, your sins are forgiven. Now, he's not saying the man's paralysis is due to sins. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is just simply saying your sins 
are forgiven. He's, but in saying that, what he's saying is shocking because the Jewish belief was that only God could forgive sin. So therefore, what Jesus is saying is blasphemy. But then Jesus continues in that same interaction. He refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is a clear Old Testament passage that everybody who's listening to him would have recognized that when he says it about himself, he's clearly claiming to be God. So instead of Jesus backing down on this, what are you claiming on this blasphemy thing, Jesus actually piles on to their blasphemy concern, leaving them disoriented because he's violating all the rules and the way they see and view life and God and and what's proper in that moment. You may recall actually in that interaction that Jesus says, which is harder, to forgive sins or to say, get up and walk? And Jesus continues saying, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. I'm going to miraculously heal this guy right in front of your eyes, and he does. Now just think about that for a minute. Imagine being there. That's an awesome moment to witness, right? I mean, this paralyzed man now up walking and dancing. That's, that's pretty amazing. But it's also a tremendously disconcerting moment. Because Jesus has directly challenged the core way that people view God, life, faith, and the rules of how you should operate in that moment. They don't see, in fact, what Jesus is exactly challenging them because so much of what he's challenging is just an assumed part of them. But Jesus is going to actually challenge in each and every one of us today that very same thing that we don't often see either that's driving us and motivating us and how we're seeing the world through this lens. Remember, again, Jesus is in his hometown with many of his disciples, and so they know a lot of people there. The story continues. He walks down the street to the square, and there's Matthew, the hated tax collector. So this is the Jew who sold out and works for the Romans to oppress his own people who he grew up with. And Jesus walks right up to Matthew, and he says, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew says, yeah, he gets up, leaves it all, follows him. And Matthew says, come on over to my place. We're going to throw a party. I'm going to introduce you to all of my friends. Now, remember, these are the friends who are the outcasts, according to the religious people. They are the, they are the sinners, right? Again, what Jesus is doing in this moment is really disorienting religious behavior. The text actually says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then he says this, it's really profound, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This phrase, mercy, not sacrifice, is actually a direct quote from the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament. So while it's not foreign to the people that would have been listening to him that day, at the same time, this phrase hits at the very core of the Jewish faith's sacrificial systems and the rules that they operate by and challenges it in a really uncomfortable way. As we're going to see in a moment, this phrase, mercy, not sacrifice, also hits at a core place, and I think in every single one of us that can make us feel uncomfortable, regardless of whether you're a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, an agnostic, or an atheist, this phrase creates a disconcerted feeling in us. 
The text continues. John said, then John's, John's disciples, so John is this John the Baptist. He's Jesus' cousin who had a huge following. He had been preaching in the wilderness, calling the Jewish nation to repentance, challenging the unhealthiness of the Jewish religious culture. So then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't fast? Fasting in that day was most often associated with mourning, mourning sin and repenting of it, mourning hard time, loss and death, and mourning hard times and appealing to God for comfort and deliverance from those hard times, praying for a new day and a new dawn to come into our life instead of the hardness and the oppression we were facing. So in that day, they prayed often and fasted often for deliverance from the Roman oppression. Jesus answers them and he says, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them. The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. See, Jesus is saying what you don't see is that the new day has actually dawned upon you. It's here now. But you, even though you're faithful as followers of God, you don't get it. You don't see it. You don't comprehend it. And the new day challenges the way you think about and respond to the rules that guide how you live life. Isn't it disconcerting when somebody tells you, you just don't get it? You don't see it? You're blind? But Jesus' intent in this parable is to help them and help you and I see what we don't see often and walk into the new day he wants for us to experience. So Jesus continues sharing this profound short parable, and we'll get to the parable right now. It says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. And neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Would you just pray with me a moment? Holy Spirit, I just pray that you'd come into this midst right now. And because even as I've been preparing for this message, I've recognized ways that I have not recognized and seen what we're talking about today. That which you want to take away, the old that we try to pour the new into and it just doesn't work in our lives. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would help us each individually sense how you are bringing us into this place of being new wineskins, able to receive all the new and good that you want to give us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus is saying our fundamental problem in faith is that walking into the new day, the new hope, the new dream, the new life that God wants for us is that we keep trying to put the new into the old and we leak, we burst, we spill all the good intended for us on the ground and we never fully realize it. Let's dive in and discover what Jesus is teaching us by answering three questions today. What is the old? What is the new? And how do we receive the new wine? We'll just spend a little bit of time on that last one. We're going to spend some more time in the future on that. Since, uh, so our first question, what is the old? 
Well, we see glimpses of the old wineskin in people's response to Jesus forgiving the paralyzed man, uh, Jesus spending time with sinners at Matthew's parties, even in Jesus' uh, very fact of inviting Matthew to follow him. And we see it in the question about fasting. Notice that question is said kind of with this accusatory, but uh, curious, but accusatory manner. It's like, Jesus, you're failing to teach your people to do the right thing, Right? All of these are actually different examples of how the old wineskin is bumping up against the new wine. So again, let's back up just a second. Jesus is using this illustration of bottling wine. In, the, in those times, bottling of wine, were, uh, bottles were made of animal skins generally, uh, sheep, goat, and ox skins. And, and being pro- after they were properly prepared, they would fill them with wine. Well, after a time, the animal skins would become brittle and stretched, and they would rupture easily, especially if you put new wine into an old wine skin when it started to ferment and expand and create pressure, it would just burst them. They would just go everywhere. New skins, however, were strong enough to stretch without bursting. See, N.T. Wright, one of the greatest theologians of our day, explains Jesus' point like this. He says, try to fit Jesus' new work into the thought forms and behavior patterns of John's movement or the Pharisees' movement or, frankly, I think, humans' way of responding to religion, and all you'll get is an explosion. Jesus says, saying the new he's ushering in requires a radical rewiring of our hearts and our minds and our motivations. In other words, completely rewiring what motivates us, how we see the world, how we see God, and how we see ourselves. So in talking about the bridegroom and feasting and then the bridegroom being taken away and and all that kind of stuff in that fasting context that we read a minute ago, Jesus is actually referring in the taken away to his death. So the parables that follow are referring to the new thing that comes because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and what that means for us. So the Pharisees would be actually appalled and disoriented by what Jesus languages here. And and Jesus actually understands that. He understands it's hard to change. Pharisees like the old way better, and we tend to like the old ways better. They they didn't want to let loose of the old way, but Jesus was letting them know a new wineskin is needed. Old wine is the goodness of God's law and God's ways and how good they are when we live them out in our lives. But there's a new day coming, Jesus says. And so that leads us to our second question. So what is the new? The new wine is also God's law that Jesus has fulfilled. And since Jesus has not only fulfilled it, but also died and rose again to pay the penalty for every human's breaking of the law, Jesus completely changes the way we respond to the law. We need a new wineskin in order to receive this new wine. But we can't because we tend to fall back into the same way as the Pharisees do, the same way as we as humans do, period. Trying to patch up our lives, trying to earn our way to salvation through performing and doing things right, rather than surrendering ourselves completely to his mercy and forgiveness. So, so let's back up just a second. Allow me to give you two illustrations that we're going to kind of refer to as we look at this a little more about how old wineskins, uh, what that motivation is and how it motivates us, and, and then what we need to do to receive this new wine. 
I remember years ago counseling a man who had uh, had multiple affairs and his wife, for some reason, was still hanging in there with him. He asked me what he needed to do. And, of, you know, of course, you say, well, if you want to grow as a person, you want to grow closer to God, you want to heal your marriage, you're going to have to let go of the affair. Kind of obvious, right? But, but he said of his mistress, I don't know what I'd do without her. She's the one place I feel love and respect right now in life. Now, any objective person can look at this and see what's going on. This adulterous relationship that he's in, just like all the previous affairs where he felt the same thing, is, is eventually going to end at some point, whether he wants it to or not. Now, we could just say this man is untrustworthy, he's selfish, he's a jerk, and all of that could be true. But that isn't the whole picture. Ask yourself the question, what is driving this man to be that way? What was driving this man's affairs was this need, this intense hole in his heart, to, to, this longing to be loved, to be accepted, to be wanted, to be respected, to be valued. And when trouble hit his marriage and he wasn't feeling that which he wanted, he tried really hard to look elsewhere to fulfill those longings. So think about this. Between his marriage and his multiple affairs, do you think it was for a lack of trying that he had not found the fulfillment of his longings? I mean, even though his trying is misplaced and coming up short, to live life like that takes a lot of motivation and a lot of effort, even if it is deceitful and even if it is wrongly focused. There's still an awful lot of trying hard going on there. As he sat with me, he was struggling with hopelessness, wondering whether he'd find whatever, ever find what he longed for, wondering if his actions had doomed him to never finding what he wanted in life. There was a desperation in him to want to hold on to the only relationship that at the moment was not highly conflicted, his affair. He was tired. He was exhausted. So that's one illustration we'll come back to shortly. Here's another illustration. As a pastor for many years and as a church consultant, I've had dozens and dozens of conversations with people who were very committed to serving in ministry, whether volunteer or paid, it didn't matter. People who gave their lives to the church, the kind of people who were always there, always serving, viewed as the most committed people to God in the church. And too often one day they end up over, over coffee with me just sitting there and saying, I can't do this anymore. I'm tired. Everything I do just seems to be empty, meaningless. It seems to blow up. Notice they actually tend to use language that is not all that different from this parable that Jesus has told us about wineskins bursting from the new wine and becoming empty. Some tend to walk away. I've seen the most dedicated small group leaders, the most dedicated volunteers in children's ministry. I've even seen the most dedicated pastors melt down and walk away, saying, I'm tired, this is fruitless, I used to love doing this. Now I can't stand it. I hate it. I'm exhausted. I'm done. And some continue to search and eventually find that new wineskin and experience a reignition, a reignition of passion and hope and joy and meaningful involvement once again. But others, sadly, some never really discover what they longed for ever again. Vibrant, meaningful faith. So here's what we're going to see and what Jesus teaches us today. The issue that drives the faithful church people to tiredness and giving up 
is the exact same issue that drives the serial adulterer to his actions in what he does. One just expresses it in socially condemned behavior while the other expresses it in socially admired behavior. But the reality is both are dealing with the same old wineskin, trying to solve the same problem. Both are driven by something that they are not always even conscious of driving them. And here it is. It's that we believe we can't feel good about ourselves unless we earn what we get. And when we fall short of that, we feel shame, and we try then to turn that shame into motivation to drive us harder to be better. Jeff Van Vonder in his book, Tired of Trying to Measure Up, a book that just really made an impact in my life many years ago, says this. He says, a person with shame views himself as defective, as someone who lacks love or acceptance, deficient even in the qualities that make him lovable or acceptable. He also sees himself as lacking in importance, credibility, and in the support of those around him. Therefore, life is an endless struggle to earn love and acceptance, to prove his worth, to acquire value, to gain importance, and to find meaning in his existence. So here's the deal. If you were raised in the church, that shame that drives you, that message that you are defective, probably oftentimes came from messages like we preached the last couple of weeks. Because obviously, Everyone knows, we all know, you know, I know about me, about you. Every one of us knows that we fall short from those ideals of all-in commitment, from that kind of love that Jesus asks us to live in. And our most natural response, our most instinctive response to those messages is to take the shame we feel from falling short, from not hitting the mark, and turn that shame into motivation to try harder, much like many athletes try to take anger and turn it into motivation to prove they're better than their competition. So even if you weren't raised in church, you heard lots of messages probably from significant people around you in your life as to what was right and best and good, and you find yourself striving to live up to those measures of success and the measures that other people spoke into your lives, often feeling like you never, ever quite get there. Striving to be good enough to remove the shame messages by whatever rules or whatever measures you have that motivate you, and yet at various points, you come to this place in life where you're just exhausted. You just can't keep it up. Yet we still live life trying to live up to the law of God, the expectations of life that we need to meet in order to feel loved and accepted and worthwhile and at peace. We live with this kind of this one-two punch of turning shame into motivation and, and working really hard to earn feelings of success that make us feel good and worthy. The old wineskin Jesus is trying to invite us to leave behind often keeps us living in this cycle that, that we like to call try hard and give up cycle. We get motivated. We turn the shame of not measuring up into energy to perform and work really hard and be better. And, when, and see, guilt trips, they actually work for motivation for a short time, don't they? Otherwise, we wouldn't use them, right? We wouldn't laugh the fact that we've all heard some of these guilt trips. Just buck up and do it. But inevitably we get to a point because we still never really get there. We still never fully measure up. And so we just get tired. 
and we give up. And then we start getting caught in this kind of an I don't care, I'm just going to do what I want to do kind of type of behaviors in our life that oftentimes are not that healthy, and we know it. We know it. We live in the cycle of try hard and give up. Many of us either don't recognize that we deal with shame or we don't like to admit we deal with shame, but every person alive struggles at some level with an underlying shame that tends to motivate us for not doing the things that we expect of ourselves, much less others or God expects of us. See, I think it's interesting that secular research on shame actually makes that point even louder. It says shame is universal. Dr. Brene Brown studied shame for decades, and she defines shame this way. She says, it's the fear of disconnection, the fear that there is something about me that makes others consider me unworthy of connection. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? Especially when it's looked at inside of a Christian belief system where God created us as humans for relationship with Him and relationship with each other. We are hardwired for connection. And when connection is threatened, we can experience and often do experience shame coming up short. So to identify how shame works in our life, she likes, the Brene Brown likes to ask you to complete this sentence. I'm not blank enough. What, what fits in that blank for you? Not good enough, not thin enough, not rich enough, not smart enough, not fluent enough, not promoted enough, not kind enough. What is it that fits in the blank for you? See, the goal of today is that Jesus is inviting us to a whole new way of being motivated and seeing God and ourselves, one that leads us to sure and lasting senses of peace and internal rest within us. See, in the case of the serial adulterer, this man had his own rules about what love should look like and what love should feel like if he achieved that. So He knew he was good enough, acceptable enough, and lovable enough when he did these things. But the problem was he couldn't live up to those rules and those expectations he even had of himself, much less make his wife love him according to the way his rules, whether they're healthy or not, but the way his rules dictated he needed to feel loved. He continually sought out that feeling in other relationships as a result. See, affairs are easy to find that kind of a feeling in, at least short term, There's few strings attached. It's an artificial relationship. You can't be close enough to really experience the same kind of difficulty you're guaranteed to experience in marriage. This guy's just trying to measure up to what he believes he needs to measure up to in order to feel what he needs to feel about himself, loved, accepted, worthwhile. And the same is true in what motivates many of us to serve and do what we do in our work or in volunteer or wherever. We often consciously or unconsciously serve to feel good about who we are. We're driven to measure up. We feel guilty if there's a need that we can fill and we don't fill it, whether it's church, home, or work. If you don't help out, if you don't work hard enough, if you don't do things well enough, you find yourself saying sorry a lot. But it's tiring. It's tiring to live that way. It's heavy, constantly fighting the pressure and the shame-based guilt that drives us. 
And following Jesus with that can be so easily become laden with that. We feel guilty about not praying enough, about not reading our Bible enough, about not going to church enough, not about being self-controlled enough to be the spouse, the parent, the worker we know we want to be, not being all in committed like we know we should be, so full of pressure that we're not good enough. But Jesus points out in these interactions and in this parable We feel that pressure because we are putting the new into the old. So we spent a little bit of time trying to define shame and talk about it here. Let's just take just a minute more before we move on to look at the idea of how we need to earn what we get. I mean, isn't that true? We need to be strong. We need to earn the brownie points in life that we need to feel good. We need to earn everything we get, the love, the affirmation, the acceptance. Otherwise, we can't feel good about our lives because we know that deep down we didn't really measure up to maybe even that affirmation or that promotion we got. That's shame at work, isn't it? If you don't think you're affected and motivated by the need to earn what you get in the accompanying shame, then let me ask you this question. How easy is it for you to, to receive a gift or to receive help from someone? Is it something you freely receive without any feeling of a need to give back to earn it? If you don't receive gifts or help from others freely and joyfully, then you are living life trying to be loved, trying to be worthy, acceptable by this one-two punch of shame that you're not good enough, so you're going to drive yourself to be good enough so you can feel good about yourself and you can earn what you got. Instead of freely receiving a gift, you need to pay him back. In fact, if you're like me, sometimes I'll bet when you receive a gift, you say, hey, nice. But in the back of your mind, you're saying, crud, now i got to give them something. And I don't have the time or the money or the creativity to do that. I don't even want to do that. Anybody else? Am I the only one who says that? See, shame and needing to earn everything drives us to exhaustion. It's fine to want to give back. But when the motivation to give back is the pressure of, I have to give back, Instead of, I want to give back. We know we're living in that old wineskin that Jesus wants to change in us. See, this tendency to do the law, the rules out of shame, to earn feeling good about yourself, to earn being in right relationship with God and others by performing, that's the old wineskin. Yet Jesus says, I'm coming to bring something new And the Bible teaches God gave us the law, the rules, the expectations of what is a good life. He gave it all to us for two primary, very good reasons. The first reason is so that you would know what is right and best and good. And he gave us the law so that the law could also help us face reality. And that reality is this. We can't live up to the law of good or God, we need a Savior. The law's purpose is to lead us to salvation, which is actually what God is working so hard to bring to us all along in our lives anyway. Romans 3 puts it this way. It says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. 
The purpose of God's law isn't to beat us up and tell us how bad we are. Deep down, we already know that we fall short. We already know we don't live up to expectations. Rather, the purpose God had in mind in giving the law is to help us recognize our need and discover our salvation in the goodness of God. When we think about the law, though, we, see, we often miss that purpose. And instead, we take the pressure on ourselves. If I can just do these commands, do these rules good enough, then I can live victoriously and feel good about my life and I'll, I'll be lovable, I'll be acceptable, and God's favor will rest on me. But we can't. So inevitably, we all grow defensive. We put walls up. We grow weary. We give up. We blame God. We blame other things. Because we can't. See, Paul says this weight of the law is lifted by Jesus. Romans 7 puts it this way. So my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And what he's saying there is when you committed your life to Christ, when you got baptized, when you decided to be all in with Christ in all of your imperfections and all the problems you got in your life, but when you said, I'm all in with God, you died to the law and the old way of motivating. And now you are united with the one who is raised from the dead. And as a result, you get to produce a harvest of good deeds for God. There's joy, there's meaning, there's purpose, there's value now. So here's the heart change that actually forms the battle to rewire our hearts. We don't obey now in the new out of a sense of fear, but out of a gratefulness for who Jesus is and all he has done. See, religion says, I obey to earn my salvation. But Christianity, the new wineskin says, I obey because, because I'm loved perfectly. And I'm so grateful. See, the purpose of the law is not to control evil. All we have to do is read the newspapers to see how bad the law is at controlling lawbreakers, right? God's law was to drive us to the loving grace of God and hold us there. And grace is not God's way of saying that sin doesn't matter. It matters very much. Grace is God's way of saying, I paid the price you were trying to pay. And I've already secured acceptance. I've already secured love for you. And that is eternally secure if you will just receive the gift. See, the rewiring of our heart God wants to do is to rewire us so that we see everything, all of our motivations, all of our instincts, we see through the eyes of being perfectly loved and accepted right now, already, even before we are perfected in our own lives, even while we're yet messed up. And then our obedience becomes totally different, motivated. We get to learn about the goodness of God. No matter how many times we mess up at it, we just get, get, get back up and learn through obedience about the goodness of God. Gratefully that we get the opportunity to do that because we're accepted. See, the core motivations, the core beliefs, the core assumptions of our heart need to change in order for us to receive the new. And the new obedience becomes just a natural result of that security, of that rest that we have inside because we know how loved we are. 
So then God's commands about finances become different to us and we receive them different. We can trust God to meet your financial needs and that may result in you being more generous in your support of other people because you're no longer worried about that. You trust God. Believing in Jesus' death and resurrection and how important that is may, may cause you to say, you know what, I don't need this car. I don't need this nicer house because I, I am so content right now in what he did for me. Knowing you have God's approval may result in you depending less on your own performance and, and your need to seek others' approval and it won't bother you as much when you don't always have that approval. Trusting in God's promise may result in you being more at peace in those unknown waiting times of life where you're just going, what am I to do next? Where's God? What's the decision? Where am I going in life? Because you trust God that one day He's going to finish the good work He's beginning in you of restoring you to the perfectly good way He created you to be. If you, if you believe that, that, that may result in making you respond totally different to life and yourself when you fail. Because instead of shame about failing, it, it just becomes this quick repentance. And then you just get back up and you keep walking forward because there's this rich, deep peace and abiding hope that God loves you even when you did that, even in the midst of that. See, this is the transformation into being a new wineskin that Jesus is talking about. So finally, and very briefly, the third question, how do we receive the new wine? And again, we're going to spend some more time on this in the future. To live this life of freedom and fullness that Jesus gives us, there are, I think, two main arenas we need to discuss briefly, and they're renewing of our mind and fighting the fight of faith. That's what we're going to call them. The first, renewing of your mind. You, some of you may have memorized the scripture, Romans 12. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then it says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not conform any longer to the ways you've always responded, the ways you've always been driven, the rules of this world that say you are not worth it unless you earn your way. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, Paul's statement is so much more than just positive thinking here in the renewal of the mind. Be transformed is this Greek word from which we actually get the word metamorphosis. So it's this idea that we change completely from the inside out. But in the Greek, it's also put in the passive, which means that we are transformed by something done to us, not by our own effort that we do on our own. See, transformation is not our job. It happens as a result of us renewing our minds and making space for God to rewire us, learning to replace those old shame feelings with meditations on how much you are loved by God. Because we are more clear on what the new wine brings, we more fully trust in the message God says about us that we are loved, we are accepted, not because of any laws that we've kept or spiritual merit badges that we've earned. We're brand new creations because Jesus fulfilled the law, paid the price for our deficiencies, and we now are clean and blameless, no longer under indictment. We belong. We are connected to God. 
The second beyond renewal of the mind is this, the fight of faith. This fight is not about pushing and performing harder, but about consistently challenging our experience to choose to make our entire focus and confidence be in what Jesus says about who we are and trust in the stability of what he says about who we are. See, this is not first and foremost a behavior battle, trying to produce better behavior, but it is a but it's characterized by fighting to believe what is true about us because of what God has done. It's a fight to decide to live in a manner, even when we don't feel it, even then, even when our instincts are going against us, to choose to override those instincts and to live in a manner by faith consistent with who we already are in Jesus, even if we don't feel like we're that and what he's already done for us. It's because of the performance of God that we act. And he's totally faithful. It's the fight to recognize that the often hidden pressure and motivation of shame that drives us. And then, and then instead of that, meditating on God's truth and finding in God's word the truth that says, no, this is who you are. This is not what you are. The shame is not what you are. This is what you are. And it means when you get into that battle and that fight that you actively engage in worshiping God and declaring who He is and declaring our love and thanks for what He's done for us and declaring who we are in God's eyes and allowing the Holy Spirit to meet us in that moment and touch those moments and rewire us from the ground up. The instincts of our heart to change our mind, our will, and our emotions so that we come in line with the new reality Jesus has ushered in and offers us in the gift of life. And we're going to talk more about that in the future. It's, it's, it's really about learning to live in that rest of God. So there's a couple of ways we can apply this today. One way is to simply maybe this week go out and just say, uh, go home and, and take two simple actions. You can, you, you can go home and, and, and pick a part of the Bible. I, I would suggest maybe the book of Ephesians, but if you're reading somewhere else, pick another part of the Bible. And read it. And what I want you to do this week is I want you to write down all the promises that you read about how loved you are, how acceptable you are, how valued you are, how worth it it was for Jesus to pay the price for you, how secure you are now and in the future that God's promise is going to take you guaranteed to where He says He's going to take you. Write down all the verses that talk about stuff like that. And then I want you to do something else. When you start to feel that pressure to perform coming on you, when you start feeling that guilt or that shame come on you, I want you to try to pause for a second. At some point, maybe, maybe you can't at the moment, but maybe later in the day, you pause and you go, okay, what was behind that? What message am I telling myself? What message am I hearing from the past that is driving that pressure and that tiredness and that shame that I'm feeling? And then I want you to lay that down on a piece of paper and I want you to take one of those promises that you wrote from Scripture that applies to that, that speaks the opposite of that. And I want you to lay it beside that and just spend some time thanking God that this, what Scripture says, is what you are, not that, the shame message you've been telling yourself. And just thank Him and create space for Him. You know, one of the ways I do this on a regular basis is, is, is uh, I'm, I'm as driven as the rest of you in life. 
I can struggle with not feeling like the dreams I feel like God has given me are happening big enough, fast enough, and right. And when I get caught up in that and I start hearing those shame messages, I go back to the Bible where it says, you know what, He is going to finish. He guarantees He will finish the work He began in me. So it doesn't matter how far short I fall right now. He says He will finish that work. And the Bible also says God's word, his promises that he speaks will not return void. And then I'll just turn that into worship and say, God, thank you that I don't have to be the promise and dream fulfiller in my life. Thank you that you are the person who does that. And you just create this mental and emotional and spiritual space for God to come to you, for you to encounter his spirit and begin the rewiring process in a deeper way. Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, thank you that you want to take those areas that we don't even know what drives us. Because, Lord, we've all got them. We all do things that we, that we do that we don't like what we do, and then we look, why did I do that? We don't even know why we did it. But, Lord, behind that, there's, there's this old wineskin There's these old messages. There's this need to earn everything that just you want to take away because you have given us everything up front. said, come on, just trust me and I'll lead you in a good way. Stop trying to earn it. Lord, I pray that your spirit would come to each one of us this week and that you would help us identify those ways that create tiredness, that create guilt and shame and that you would lead each and every one of us into that place of worshipful rest. That we know, that we know, that we know, that we know how loved we are and how good you've made us. And we trust you in that. So Lord, even as we turn our hearts to worship in this next song and even as we talk about how good you are, would you come even now by your Spirit and touch us in those places and continue that good rewiring process you have for us, that we can receive all the good, all the blessing that you have, and we can realize that it's not going to just come and not bring hope and then spill out, but it's going to actually happen in our lives. So we welcome you, Holy Spirit, in this moment of worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.